Hey, South Bend City Church Digital fan Mariah here. We're so glad that you chose to join us this week. This week was actually a Eucharist gathering, so before you get any further, go ahead and hit pause and go find some sort of cracker and some sort of juice if you want to join us in the Eucharist a little bit later. As always, if you consider South Bend City Church to be your home and you would like to give financially, you can do that by going to www.southbendcitychurch.com backslash give. All right, let's jump in with Jason for this week's message. Uh, a little bit later in our gathering, uh, the Eucharist will be the centerpiece of our practice today. And before we get to that point, I just want to clarify a couple of like basic things about that so it's helpful for you. Um, first of all, when we come to that point, you might be wondering if this is for you. Uh, different churches have different ways of thinking and talking about that. But our practice as a community is that anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus is radically welcome there, deeply welcome there. Frankly, we don't care like what kind of week you've had or whether you're proud of the decisions that you've made or you're not. We don't actually even care what you believe about that. It's just if you want to be at the table with Jesus, we would be honored to welcome you there. So that'll be the, the baseline for us. When we come to that point uh, later in the gathering, uh, I'll serve those who are going to serve you on stage first, and then once they've been served, they're going to take their places at the tables in the corners. And then like, we'll let you know you're welcome to get up out of your seat if you'd like to go forward and to receive. And when you do that, you can walk forward and you can just uh, hold out an open hand. You don't have to take anything at the table of Jesus. You can simply open your hand and receive because he freely gives. And when you do that, somebody's going to place a, a piece of gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, egg-free bread in your hand. And um, it's all of those things just to make sure everybody is able to partake in this without concern for dietary needs. And they'll remind you the body of Christ broken for you. Uh, you hold on to it for a moment, don't eat it yet. And you can step over and somebody will hold out a cup of grape juice, but they'll remind you the blood of Christ shed for you. And you can take the piece of bread and dip it in the cup and then take and receive that. And that'll, that'll be our Eucharistic practice uh, in a moment. But before we get there, a sermon. Uh, this is one of those sermons uh, where I'm like, hang with me, like hold on to your butts, we're going to get there, I promise. Uh, we're going to like go on a bit of a journey together with some ideas. Um, but I know that I came back from the summer with some renewed convictions about who we are and how we do what we do. And um, some of these convictions uh, will take like both brain and heart to work out together, and this is probably one of those days for that. But I've met you all, you're very bright. I think, I think we're ready for this together. Uh, let me start by reminding you a little bit of what I said yesterday, or last week, sorry. Uh, during my sabbatical when I was away, I sought out some time with a, a theologian and psychologist named Richard Beck. Uh, I sought out time with him because his thinking's been really helpful for me personally, and because I see him wrestling with a lot of the same questions that shape our community here. First of all, a big fan of the intersection between th theology and psychology. I think they're really good conversation partners, and each one helps us understand the other and think about the other a little bit. So I really like that about Beck's work. Um, he asked questions like, like, what would you do if modern psychology has, uh, has discovered that there are all these sort of like psychological reasons that we might want to believe in God? And because of those psychological reasons, then questions whether that belief is like justified or not. So he wrestles with questions like that. Um, so I, saw, I sought out some time with Beck, and we went to Abilene, Texas, to a little steakhouse there, and we talked for hours uh, about life and faith and church. And uh, again, I know this is uh, revisiting last week a little bit right now, but as I was kind of processing with him our life together as a community, 
a lot of what I, what I told Beck was that like, there are all these sort of like challenges that we face at South and City Church that I think I theoretically would have understood would be part of our life. But in real life, it's harder. Uh, like for example, we say we wanna be a community of grace and peace in the world. And for us, grace and peace, these aren't like squishy words. They have strength behind them. Grace describes the generosity of God, the completely unconditional way that God gives God's self and God's life and being to all of us. Jesus says things like, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, that God indiscriminately shows favor. So you have that, but it's also really clear that God cares about justice, which is another word for peace. By peace, we don't just mean the absence of conflict. We don't mean all is quiet and calm. By peace, we actually mean uh, a picture of the way that things are meant to be put back together. And that when things aren't holding together the way that they are meant to be put together, you might need some disruptions, right? Well, it's one thing to say a community of grace and peace and put it on the wall and for me to end the gathering with a little benediction and say grace and peace be with you and you say it back to me and we all cry a little bit and walk out and hug. Like that's fine, that's beautiful, that's great. But it's another thing altogether to work out what would it mean to actually live with these two postures of completely um, indiscriminate kindness and generosity toward every human being that we see in the room and outside our doors and simultaneously to work for real justice and real peace in the world, to try to put things back together in the right ways. And you might have to say some hard things to do that, right? Uh, I was talking to Beck about the conviction that a lot of us share here, which is that Jesus is not a Democrat or a Republican. Like, I don't know if you knew that. I don't know which church you've been to lately. Uh, but we don't think Jesus is a Republican or a Democrat. We think partisan politics is part of what's breaking the world right now. And yet, if by politics you mean how you use your power and what kind of world we're building. Well, it seems like Jesus cares about how we use our power and what kind of world we're building, which might mean that to hang with Jesus is gonna call us into some conversations that feel a little bit political, even though we don't think Jesus is partisan and we're not trying to create a Republican church or a Democrat church, right? We talked about that and just like, what a challenge that is. Uh, we talked about faith and doubt and how at this community, like, there's a lot of us who actually believe like, really deeply that, that doubt is part of faith and faith interacts with doubt, that doubt's not a threat to faith, and that frankly, sometimes when we try to create environments that are very pro-faith, we end up crowding out this really important part of the human experience, which is where you bring your brain to the equation and you think about your life experiences and you don't deny what you've been through or what you've seen or the questions that you're wrestling with, but you bring those with you into the conversation around faith. And it sounds theoretically great to try to create a community where we have you know, believers and doubters and everybody who's a bit of both. And frankly, there are days in my life where I am more doubter than believer and probably the case for you too. But it's complicated to figure out how to actually work all that out on a Sunday morning or in our life together. I complained about this to Beck for a while. We talked about the pastoral and the prophetic. To be pastoral is to create a safe space. Pastoral literally comes from the idea of a shepherd with sheep in a pasture. And the definition of a good shepherd is somebody who keeps the sheep safe, right? Although the prophetic means saying hard truths sometimes. And what I've learned little by little in my own educational journey is that often the very same word spoken is pastoral for some and prophetic for others. Like there, there, are, there are days when something that maybe makes you feel a little rattled is the very thing that helps somebody else know that they are seen in this room, right? So uh, there's a real tension between the pastoral and the prophetic. How about this one? Um, by the way, are you guys figuring out why I don't sleep a lot of nights yet? Because all of these are with us all the time. How about this one? Um, 
Like right at the heart of Christian belief is, is incarnation, the idea that God lived God's actual life in the actual body of a brown-skinned man in ancient Palestine. Like that's there in all the details of his actual life, his social location, everything about his experience, that, that God was located in the details. That's a way of interpreting incarnation, right? And the fact is in this room, different lives have different details and different experiences, right? Whether those details are shaped by race or gender or socioeconomic status or your own personal story, but incarnation means to look for God in the particulars of lives rather than washing over those things, right? However, we also have these texts in the New Testament that say things like, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile nor slave nor free nor male nor female. And so somehow, like, the detail of your life, your social location, your experience matters and should not be erased in this room. And... Somehow in the mystery of Christ, we are finding a way of belonging to one another that transcends those distinctions. I have yet to figure out how to make that work, but I believe in all of that. Um, one of the challenges that we faced that we felt in the last couple of weeks is that we're a spiritual family and we're a 501c3 with budgets and bills to pay and moral obligations to live up to our commitments. I mean, that's just real. Um, there's a challenge of figuring out how to be movement and institution. You know, a movement is typically really good at like stirring things up and instigating change. And do you know that movements are terrible at sustaining change, right? Conversely, institutions tend to be really good at preserving the gains of past revolutionary movements, right? So whatever the big idea was that was worked out through a revolutionary movement, it often takes some institutional structures to come alongside that revolutionary movement to build something sustainable so that people can live inside the benefit of that change. Does that make sense? Well, in some ways you can describe church as movement and in some ways you can describe it as institution. And it can feel really hard to figure out how to make those two things work together. Um, conservative, progressive. There are things about SBCC that are deeply conservative. I don't know if you knew that. We don't tend to have that reputation around town. Uh, but yeah, thanks for laughing at that one. <laughs> Every week we gather and turn our attention to the Bible, these texts that are 2,000 years old and older, and we, we continue to turn our attention to an experience that predates us by millennia. Um, believing that there are, that there are like, true things that we are meant to inherit from all of that, right? Uh, we don't think that the newest idea is always the best idea. We don't assume, at least, well, I'll speak for me in the way that we lead here. We don't assume that the current thinking on any given question is always the best thinking. However, when we look at Scripture itself, we also see that the people of God, the entire time they've been with God, are having to live in the interpretive tension between what they've inherited and what is happening right now, what's breaking into the world right now. I could spend hours taking you through example after example that show that even in Scripture, that old book that we've inherited from 2,000 years ago, that even in Scripture, the story keeps being told that if you're going to be with God, you're going to find yourself living in the tension between conservative and progressive. So anyway, I was like talking about all of this with Beck, all these challenges that shape our life together, and I shared this comment from him last week, but I want to say it again, and I want to go from there. He just said, it sounds like you guys have kingdom problems. Which is to say, uh, you are wrestling with the kinds of disruptions and challenges um, that, that describe our life when we try to actually work out like, gospel and flesh and blood in real time with one another. Like gospel and flesh and blood in real time with one another, that these kinds of challenges erupt. Um, there's a word for this that I've used before and I've used it even talking to you today already. One of the words I could use for all this is tension. How do you feel when I put that word on the screen? 
And you can't say tense, that's not allowed. <laughs> How else do you feel when I put that word on the screen? Do you feel any physical? Do you feel like a, a, a physical thing? I know the word tension literally like gets me tuning into the back of my, the top of my, of my back and my neck there where tension actually lives in my body sometimes. Tension is largely a, a negative word and we use it to describe things that need to be resolved, right? That's typically how we use the word tension. Tension describes a situation that is lacking resolution and we want to resolve it. Now, before I go any further, let me just say, there are some tensions that should be resolved. You probably have them in your personal life. I know I have them in mine. Some of the tensions in my life are a result of me not addressing an issue, not facing conflict, not getting off my butt and dealing with something that I've been avoiding. Some tensions are meant to be resolved and the longer they go, the worse it is. I get that, right? However, that's not the case with every tension. Let me give you a little visual image to see if this helps you at all. Uh, years ago, I wanted to go camping with my friends, and so I borrowed a tent, and I did a little practice setup in my backyard. Because I am not tent literate, and I didn't want to be out there at night in the woods among the predators trying to figure out how to make shelter for myself. <laughs> and I remember it took me quite a while. I was thankful that my yard was fenced in so my neighbors couldn't laugh at me while I tried to figure out how to make one of these kind of modern tents work. Now, if you've ever like, used one of these tents, you know that this entire structure works because of this. Next slide. Anybody know what those are called? <coughs> tension rods, yeah. So like a modern tent, usually the way they work is you have these rods that you sort of put together piece by piece and they have some flex to them, some give to them, and you stake each end of the rod into the ground in such a way that like creates tension on the rod. And what does the tension do? It creates space, right? It takes this two-dimensional like, I don't know what it's made out of, is it? Um, plastic, the, the, the tent material, it takes the two-dimensional stuff that's just laying there flat and it opens it up and creates space within it, right? If you resolve the tension in your tent, what's going to happen? You won't have a tent anymore, right? You won't have any shelter or space for yourself or anybody else that you're trying to camp with. I think this is a way of reframing tension. Um, it's not always wrong or bad. I've been thinking a lot about this for, you know, seven years. Also the last month or so because it's been with us from the very beginning as a church as we talk about like who we are trying to be. And specifically I was thinking about it a lot this week as I was trying to work out this message for you. And while I was thinking about it, I also uh, tuned into the most recent episode of a podcast from another preacher that I listened to from time to time, a guy named Rob Bell. And it was interesting on his podcast this week, he was talking especially about the kind of political um, polarity that is ripping us apart in the world right now and how um, in this sort of conservative progressive fight, you know, there, there is sort of this um, loud message from one side of the argument that basically says, we just need to drag things back to the way they used to be, period, full stop. And then there's another voice that seems to be saying everything about the way things used to be or have been is wrong. Everything about the status quo is wrong entirely and the only way forward is to abandon it completely and like move into new visions and new ideas. And as he was talking about this and trying to say for himself that you need to hold some tensions rather than resolving them, he put it like this. Anytime you take a dynamic tension at the heart of human vitality and you ask people to pick one or the other, you're going to have absolute madness. Let me say that again. He's not talking about all tensions. He's talking about the ones that matter, right? The important ones. And he says, anytime you take a dynamic tension at the heart of human vitality, and you ask people to pick one or the other, you're going to have absolute madness. Let me just check in with you. Let me leave that on the screen. Has anybody sensed that there is some tension in the world right now? 
Has anybody felt that you are being asked to just pick one side in some of these tensions? Yeah? Has anybody felt that some of the madness, some of the brokenness, some of the fracturing that's happening is because we are buying into the idea that every tension is meant to be resolved? Have you felt that? I want to keep pressing uh, in this direction. I'm talking about tensions. Tension is a negative word often, but it could be a positive thing for the way that we maintain space and shelter for one another. It also seems to be the case, like Beck was saying, that um, tension is baked into the Christian story, baked into Christian theology, except typically in Christian theology, we don't use the word tension for it. We use another word. The word is this, paradox. Paradox uh, is a word for two things seemingly in contradiction that are held together. Um, Sometimes you have two ideas that you really believe in, two, two convictions that you hold. And you look at each of them individually and you say, I affirm that, I believe that, I hold to that. But you set them side by side. And the best way to describe it is you're holding a paradox, right? Sometimes you've had multiple experiences in your life that have led you to hold things side by side that don't add up. Like you've lived through things that have brought you to a place where you look back on your own story and you say, I, I have lived through this, I have felt this, I have known this. And also I have lived through that, I have felt that, I have known that. And they're with me, they're in my body, they're in my story and I don't know how to reconcile them but both of them are with me and true. If that's the case, you have some practice in holding paradox and you're also not in bad company if you've been holding paradox because like I said, Christian theology does this through and through. Um, a few examples from like the archives of Christian doctrine. Like right in the heart of Christian theology is the idea that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine. And um, you can read centuries of deliberations among voices in the church trying to figure out how you would possibly make sense of that. And when you read uh, like the writings of the church uh, fathers, for example, like early second, third, fourth, fifth century, you can just hear them grappling with the idea that Everything that we have thought about what it means to be divine and what it means to be human seems to make that an impossible statement that Christ was both, and yet also our experience of Christ tells us that's exactly what happened. So they wrestle with holding that paradox, and century after century they've tried to work it out. Um, built on that paradox is another one, the idea that God is somehow three in one, that God is somehow both uh, a community and a unity. Well, that, that doesn't really make sense at the literal level, right? you've found yourself stumbling again into the ground of paradox, holding two things side by side. Um, you and I are living, breathing paradoxes. It's like deeply orthodox to say a couple things about you and me. One, we are sinners. Two, we are saints. That simultaneously, you and I are walking around with two truths about ourselves. Um, we are sinners and we are saints. I know for me, my failure to love is rampant in my life. And it's a result of um, choices that I've made and my personal history and, and just sort of this bent that I feel within me from time to time to not love well. Um, that's just true about me. Uh, I can own that. It doesn't need to be a shaming truth, but I can like tell the truth about myself. Sinner, right? And by the way, if you don't tell that truth about yourself, um, it's a lot harder to be like a well-adjusted human being, right? But also saint. I mean, that's the words in the New Testament about, about you and me that we um, have the life of God within us. Beloved daughter, beloved son of God. That that's not just language for Jesus, it's language for, for his people too. 
Um, sinner and saint simultaneously. And by the way, if you study the history of Christian heresy, uh, if, which I'm sure a lot of you are doing this afternoon, um, <laughs> if you look back through 2,000 years of people grappling with what is true, what have we learned about ultimate reality, and then what is not true, often the heresies that get condemned where the people say, no, that's not quite right, often they're a partial truth. Often heresies are simply somebody trying to resolve a tension that was never meant to be resolved. Like, for example, like the Christ stuff. People, you know, say, well, it just doesn't work in my head that Jesus is human and God, so I've got to give up on some part of that. And then you end up with the heresies that the church has said, no, that's not orthodox. That's not in line for us. Because so much of the deep truths that we have learned from this story are the kinds of truths that can only be expressed in paradox. Uh, there's a, a cheeky writer from the, from the UK who's written uh, books that I really love named G.K. Chesterton. And Chesterton says it like this in one of his the church keeps its beliefs side by side like two strong colors, red and white. It has always had a healthy hatred of pink. Now, if you're wearing pink right now, please understand he's not talking about your shirt, right? But what he's saying is like, don't try to resolve it. Don't blend it. Don't moderate it. Like, just hold both. Find the space within you and within your community and within your life and within your faith to hold both. And that'll expand you as you do it. And so much of this is what we have experienced here at a church. And I just want to name it, because if we don't name it, we're going to keep calling these things problems rather than recognizing that perhaps they are paradoxes. A problem is meant to be solved. A paradox is meant to be held. And a lot of what we are discovering in our life together is that we have to hold some paradoxes. Now, I think there's a reason that paradox is the language of the church. I think there's a reason that so often when the church tries to describe like the story that we hold, the truths that we, that we are um, giving our heart to, that we resort to paradox because different kinds of language are useful for different kinds of things. Now, just to kind of like demonstrate this, forget about everything I've just said. Just go with me for a metaphor for a moment. So just to make the point that different kinds of language are good for different kinds of things. Imagine that you're in a romantic relationship. Maybe you're dating. Maybe you've been married for 20 years. I don't know. But imagine that you're in a romantic relationship and imagine that the person who loves you has taken you out for like a, a beautiful long date night. You've gone to your favorite restaurant. Maybe it's white tablecloths. Maybe the candle is lit on the table and you've had some wine and you're just, you're just feeling all the feelings of love and affection and they're feeling all those things toward you. And imagine that your partner, your, your romantic partner, your lover, your, par your, your husband, your wife, like your best friend, they, they want to express to you that the deepest things they feel toward you in terms of their love and affection. And so you're at that point in the night where it's time for all the wishy-washy stuff, you know, all the, all the feelings to come out. And imagine that your partner looks at you across the table with a little tear in their eye and they say this. You just set my hypothalamus on overdrive and flood my brain with dopamine, baby. <laughs> now for the record, that's, I, I borrowed that, except for the baby part, I, I borrowed that language from an actual physiological description of the neurobiology of attraction and love and romance because at a physiological level, that is what's going on, by the way. Those feelings you have, there are brain chemicals driving those feelings. But wouldn't you agree that unless you have a very strange relationship, which I'm not going to judge, this is not the right kind of language for love, right? When it comes to love, we often reach into poetry and metaphor. I feel like I'm incomplete without you or, which could be codependent, I know, but move on. Like, or I, <laughs> I think my mom just clapped. Um, uh, you know, um, you take my breath away. Um, 
I don't know, like, like love reaches into the language of poetry and metaphor because different kinds of language are appropriate for different kinds of things. And talk of the hypothalamus and dopamine is appropriate for physiological processes. And paradox is a certain kind of language. And when you find people using the language of paradox, there's a reason for it because paradox is good for certain things. And um, to borrow somebody else's scholarship on this, uh, I want to take you to a book that I was reading uh, during my sabbatical. I was over at this monastery and um, I was very bored. And <laughs> there's a library. So I pulled a book off the shelf. Uh, and the book was uh, an exploration of an ancient mystic, like centuries old guy named Meister Eckhart. And Eckhart is a, is, a, is a Christian mystic who writes in very profound and mysterious ways about his own experience of God. Um, and this book was interacting with Meister's work, Eckhart, that is. Uh, and um, I just stumbled upon this page and read this line and it clarified so much for me because at this point in my sabbatical, I had been working on the tensions and the paradoxes that shape our life together and trying to figure out how, it, how is it that we hold the paradox? Like how, how do we just hold these things that sit side by side? And this is the line that I read uh, <clears throat> in the book. So first of all, this first sentence is a quote from Meister Eckhart and some of you are gonna be like, man, I wanna read him and some of you are gonna be like, what is he on? But he says, God is a nothing and God is a something, and what is something is also nothing. Now, before that just sounds like, you know, philosophical gobbledygook, I think part of what he's saying here is like, God is not a thing, you know that, right? The chair that you're sitting on is a thing. The cup of coffee in your hand is a thing. The phone, like the shirt that you're wearing, these are things, and God is no thing. You gotta abandon that kind of category for whatever it is that we mean when we talk about God. So that's a little bit of what he's getting at here. But now Fox, the person writing the book, says, we are in the interesting camp of paradox, which is one way we invent to talk about mystery. So in the same way that poetry is language we've invented to talk about love, paradox is language that we've come up with when we're trying to describe mystery. Mystery. And at the center of Christian faith has always been the language of mystery. The mystery of God in us and with us and among us, but not in ways that we can contain. You know, not, not, not that we have a patent on God here in this room, but we are here to pay attention to that mystery, right? Mystery meaning that God um, can perhaps be better described by some systematic theologies than others, but that none of that language amounts to God because God can be a bit slippery and elusive and God doesn't always submit God's self to the categories of our language. Mystery. And the more I've thought about these tensions that shape our community, the more it struck me that like, we are here to pay attention to the mystery. Um, we're not just here for a TED talk. I don't know if you knew that. Granted, sermons tend to be a lot longer than TED talks here, I understand. Um, we're not just here for an ethical discussion, even though there are ethics that that unfold from the way of Jesus. And we're not just here um, for like good old fashioned community, even, even though like community is birthed in our life together, right? Those are all really good things that come along, including TED Talks, TED Talks are great. But not only are we here for more than that, but I think we can only be sustained if we hold on to more than that. Um, in this conversation with Beck, he, uh, he said this to me, he said, Here's the thing, all those paradoxes that shape your church, all those tensions that you were trying to hold, you know they're not gonna hold together without the sacred center. 
that, it, that it's actually continuing to pay attention to the mystery that helps us hold these tensions and make room for these paradoxes. Let me see if I can kind of give you uh, an example uh, in like a more practical way, because I know some of this has probably been kind of heady and I'm not trying to do that to us today. Um, let me tell you about a tension that I ran into this past week and what it meant for me to try to turn my attention to the mystery. Um, I got a text message uh, and it was like the nastiest text message I've gotten in years. Um, it's paragraphs long. Uh, used the F word in very creative ways, mostly referring to me. Um, and I got it like late at night. I was actually sitting on my couch reading a book, trying to wind down for the night. And my phone's sitting next to me and I see this notification pop up and it's actually from somebody I've not heard from in a really long time. Um, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I open it and I read it and uh, it is just, um, a lot of anger showing up on my phone, you know? And I did what, you know, probably all of you would do too, which is my brain starts, you know, racing. And part of me is feeling really um, defensive of myself. And part of me is having an argument in my head with this person about why they're wrong and why I'm right. And I just kind of noticed this like spinning wheel on my head. And I think that's not good. That's not where I want to be. That's not who I want to be. So I decided to like, leave my phone at the house and go for a walk in my neighborhood. So I go for a walk and for a few minutes on the walk, I continue to have that argument with this other person in my head. But I came back from sabbatical with this fresh sort of renewed idea, this commitment, that's not my idea, but I'm just like a, a new commitment to this idea that like the way that we're gonna make it, the way that we're gonna do this, the way that all these paradoxes are gonna be held, the way, the way that our vision of community is gonna get lived out is that we're gonna have to keep coming back to the mystery at the center of it, that we don't contain or possess, but that's here in our midst. And so I decided after arguing with this person in my head for a while, I would try to turn my attention to the mystery instead. And so I tried to kind of tap into a mode that I'd reestablish at the monastery, which is just to be present with God without having to have a conversation. Um, to just kind of recognize, I think God is here right now and with me and I am with God and in God in ways I don't even understand, but I'm just gonna try to like tune the deepest frequencies of my awareness into that reality and, and just see what happens. And so I walk for a while and there's a lot of um, kind of sacred silence. It's not like I hear anything from God, um, but also my brain kind of quiets and I just decide to walk quietly and try to pay attention to that mystery there. And guys, the, the strangest and in some ways most beautiful thing happened this feeling erupted inside me, which was, man, I miss that person. And like, that didn't do anything to, you know, resolve um, what I think was really hurtful and unkind and the fact that what was in that text message was in many ways the very reason that we haven't been in touch in quite a long time. Um, but it, there was just something about pain, like paying attention to the mystery, the idea that in ways I cannot even describe and my words will fail to comprehend that God is like in our midst, at work in everything, present in all things, that, that the mystery is here and we don't get to contain it and none of our language is enough to describe it and we don't have the patent on it, but somehow the mystery of Christ is that God is in us and with us and if I can pay attention to it, this space opens up inside like a tent with the tension poles up and in that bigger, deeper space inside, I find room for all these things. And yeah, I'm angry and defensive and I feel attacked and it's not kind. And also I love that person. And I still have grief and sadness around the history there. 
That's what I'm trying to say about, about like how paying attention to the mystery might make room for these things. I'm guessing virtually everybody here today can think of some tensions in their life, and some of them should be resolved. Deal with it, right? That's me talking to myself too. Some of the tensions in my life would get fixed if I would just deal with them. Other tensions are not meant to be resolved in my own life, in my relationships, in my work. And some of the tensions in your life are not meant to be resolved. It's time to start thinking of them not as problems to solve, but paradoxes to hold. Um, In your marriage, God knows marriage is one of the places where the tensions live. Two human beings with histories and dreams and desires and wounds and wants and needs trying to be one. Part of me is like, good luck. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not cynical about marriage, by the way. Big believer in it. But I'm like, but good luck. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's a reason marriage is, is called a sacrament. It's a place where the mystery shows up. That's what a sacrament is. A sacrament is a place where the mystery promises to meet you. And so I would say... Um, that like for a church community that, that wants to not resolve, can I go, okay, 30 second rant. A lot of like the bad religion that's really well funded in the world right now with growing budgets and growing crowds, they build the entire thing by resolving all the tensions in the room on your behalf, right? A lot of preachers build their platforms by telling you, I'm gonna alleviate you of all of the tensions of faith in the modern world. I'm gonna answer every question, tell you what to think, tell you who's in and out and who's right and who's wrong. And by doing that, like preachers build huge crowds and sell millions of books. Like there is a real pressure pushing that kind of religion in the world. And we resist it because every time we come back to the Jesus story and the theological reflections upon it, like we just keep seeing that so much of it is about growing up to be the kind of people who can hold this space rather than collapse it. And so, um, so we will be a, a community that, um, though believers and the doubters and everybody who's a bit of both, though coming from all kinds of different places, we will be paying attention to the mystery. And sometimes we'll see it eyes wide open, it'll come at us full on, and otherwise it'll be like at the corner of your eye and you'll barely notice it, but it's there, right? And we'll do that together. Um, today we have this sacrament, uh, the Eucharist communion. And I I think for a community that's trying to understand how to hold the paradoxes of life and faith, how to pay attention to the mystery, this is a really good gift for us. Uh, This meal is packed with paradox. The glory of God in a broken, suffering, brown-skinned man on a cross killed by the state unjustly. That's a paradox. Um, when you feel most abandoned by God, you perhaps are in deepest solidarity with Jesus. Because he prays on the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I was going to say a little bit of flour and water, but there's no flour in this, so I don't actually know what it is. But whatever the ingredients are in the gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, egg-free bread, um, you know, a really common food staple and the body of Christ, the, the mystical body of Christ, God, God given to the world, a cup of grape juice, the blood of Christ shed for you and me and for the world. This, this thing is packed with paradoxes and you might uh, arrive at this table a paradox. You might come here aware that you are a sinner and saint. You might come to this meal and discover at the table a feeling of fullness and belonging and belovedness and love Or you might come to this table and discover that within your own heart and life, the place where you hope you would find fullness and joy and belonging and love just feels painfully empty. 
And frankly, this meal might even exacerbate that longing. Yeah, welcome to the paradox. Um, but we're gonna keep paying attention to the mystery together and the sacrament will be the way that we do that today. Uh, I'm gonna pray for these elements and uh, as I pray for them, I'm gonna ask those who are serving you to come forward to the stage. And um, once I'm done praying, I'll serve them. And then once they've been served and taking their place uh, around the room, you're free if you'd like to get up out of your seat and go forward to the table to receive. Um, but let me pray. Loving God, we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And we remember that he took a cup at that table and he shared it with his friends and said, this is the cup of my promise, of a new covenant, of the unending faithfulness of God, of the inexhaustible love of God. Take and drink of that love. So we pray that these elements will be for us uh, the body and blood of Christ. We pray that this sacrament will be a place where the mystery meets us. Uh, and that maybe at this table we will learn to trust uh, the paradoxes of our life with you, God. We are sinners and saints. The world is dust and spirit. We have the highest aspirations and yet we also live by the laws of gravity. We are working out together in our midst how it is that we hold this space. And we pray and hope that somehow the mystery of you in us and among us will help us do that. We pray these things through Christ. We all said, Amen. Body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. So we'll let these uh, servers go to the tables, and then once they've found their place, you're welcome to get up out of your seats and go to the table if you'd like to receive. Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? May you discover the mystery lurking in the tensions of your life. May we resolve the things that call for it and hold space for those that don't. May we trust that God is expanding us and teaching us to hold space for one another. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.